Language and Power Podcast, Episode 9. What could 2050 look like? In this podcast series, we look closely at the language being used in and around COP26. According to the official website, the COP26 summit will bring parties together to accelerate action towards the goals of the Paris Agreement and the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Language is crucial to understanding the climate crisis, to formulating solutions and negotiating political and economic pitfalls. It's crucial to communicating science findings and recognising the social, political and economic conditions which have brought us to crisis point. Language is interaction that can accelerate action, but language is also performance and performances can be used to distract from inaction, to avoid action or postpone it. And language is what we focus on in this podcast. Hello, I am Michael Farrelly. I teach English language at the University of Hull and I research and write on issues of discourse, politics, policy and sustainability. I'm joined, as always, by Tom Bartlett. Hi, Tom. Hi there, Michael. Nice to be with you. And I uh, teach language and linguistics at the University of Glasgow. And I'm joined today by a colleague from the University of Glasgow, Catherine Happer. Hello, and I'm a sociologist who's interested in the role of media and communications in driving social change in all sorts of different medias. It's great to have you on, Catherine. Hi. Um, so what we can talk about today, we've got a, a text from TikTok entitled, What Could 2050 Look Like? And it's a post by a TikTok user called Tara um, Belrose. So let's have a listen to that first and, and see what she has to say. Here's what 2050 will quite possibly look like if we continue business as usual. You walk outside, the air is hot and heavy. Instead of checking your phone for weather, you check air quality levels, Arctic sea ice, gone. Forests, logged or burnt to the ground. Wildlife is a distant memory. High moisture in the air, higher sea surface temperatures have caused a surge in extreme hurricanes and tropical storms. Coastal cities in Bangladesh, Mexico, the United States and elsewhere have suffered brutal infrastructure damage. Extreme flooding killed thousands, displaced millions. Diseases like malaria, respiratory illnesses and malnutrition are common. Diseases spread by mosquitoes and ticks are rampant. With populations growing denser, antibiotic resistance has intensified. Melting permafrost is releasing ancient microbes that we have never been exposed to and have no resistance to. This is overwhelming healthcare systems. Those who remain at the coast will see the end of fishing. Oceans absorb too much carbon. Marine life cannot survive. The ocean is dead. Droughts and heat waves kill the weak. Vast land has become arified. If you live in Paris, you will endure summer temperatures that regularly rise to 43.8 degrees Celsius. This is normal. With the increasing refugee crisis, bloodshed will begin over water. Countries will patrol borders to protect resources inside. Food production is unpredictable. Places like Alaska can now grow crops. This could be our reality. I will be 52. What about you? A really interesting post there. And to start us off, we'll just say that this is, there's a, a very clear intertextual reference here when you watch the video of that on, on TikTok, and we'll put the link in the description. This uh, starts off with showing the cover of a book, The Future We Chose, uh, Surviving the Climate Crisis, and the authors Figueres and Rumit Karnak, who were key people in, in the COP21, which the Paris Agreement came out of. So it's referencing that book quite heavily. So what do we think of this, Catherine? Casey. Yeah, I mean, I think we've got to think about the different platforms that different groups use and the way in which they represent the values, the interests, and the kind of narratives that different groups are immersed in. So TikTok is 
a platform that's used primarily by the under 25s. The under 25s are a very politicized uh, generation. They, they, they care deeply about the future. And there was a recent study at Bath University that said 75% of young people are fearful of the future and climate change is absolutely central to their fears. So, so they're very mobilized around climate change. This, I, this video here, I mean, it's had an awful lot of views as you can see, but it's actually very representative of the kind of language, mm. that language of, you know, the bleakest of futures, if we don't act, the language of survival, the language of crisis, bloodshed, the visuals are very kind of, you know, it's this kind of dystopian future and, and, and that sense of we should be fearful because this is what we're facing if we don't act. And, and I think, um, as I say, I think it's quite representative of how young people feel. What I would say is, as somebody who comes from a media and communications background, who's been looking at the communications around climate change for quite some time now and work with NGOs and all the rest of it, this is the kind of communication that they have always guarded against because the concern is that if you focus on that kind of language of fatalism or, or the sense of dread, the sense of alarm, that it leads to disengagement over time. What I would say about that is you look at young people, currently they're certainly very mobilized around this issue. This is, this is their issue and they see it's their future. The longer term impacts, I'm not quite sure of, but, but conventional wisdom in the communications uh, sort of industry would not have been that this, this would have been a language they'd want to embrace, but young people produce things in the language and narratives as they see the world. Well, that's mm. really interesting because our podcast yesterday, we were talking about these issues of whether to promote and particularly talking about people being anxious as opposed to Barack Obama telling people to be angry. And that, that idea came up that there had been a history of people saying anxiety leading to inaction. And you're suggesting, well, that anxiety and fearful and uh, concern, they're all not quite the same thing, but you're suggesting that there's maybe a change then with this, with the, the younger generation, actually anger and a very extreme message is not leading to a lack of action. It's actually, it's a generational thing, whereas, the, you know, what we've taken as granted for the average of my generation isn't necessarily the same for, for younger people, that they might be spurred on by, by different messages and that anxiety will actually spur them onto action. I would say there, there's two kind of emotions going on. If you look at the different discourses going on in TikTok, obviously it's a huge platform. I can't, you know, there's loads of different things going on there. But there is also that anger coming out of that fear because those two things for young people, I think, are interlinked because the fearfulness is coming because they've not invested trust in governments and, and political actors to actually take the action that's needed to take. So those fear and the anger seem to kind of run together side by side on these platforms. I mean, I've got to say I'm quite torn on this to say that for this generation, the sense of anxiety, the sense of fear currently mobilizes. If, that, if, if it plays out that, you know, action isn't taken, at least to the degree that they want to see action taken in the longer term, will it lead to disengagement? And will we need other strategies to kind of bring them back in? I'm not quite sure, but certainly it'd be difficult to say at the moment that young people aren't mobilised around climate change and that anxiety, that fear seems to be at least one driver of it. That, that's really interesting, isn't it? Although they just, you know, like the hippie generation used to say was when they're into a certain age, you become capitalist and lose interest in all this when you get older. What I did find really interesting was the book that was referenced at the beginning, beginning there has two alternative futures, one which is really, really negative and one which is really utopian and very nice and the whole world living in harmony. And I must admit, when I read it, I wasn't convinced by by either picture. But the 
the whole purpose of the book, as it makes very, very clear, is it's trying to give a positive message. Exactly what you're saying, it's not trying to give this alarmist message. It's trying to say, actually, there's things you can do to avoid this so you can relax and be calm and just do these things. They don't amount to a whole lot, to be honest. They amount to eating meat a little bit less mm. and taking your plastic bottles to the recycling. And I just read this as a real sop to people carrying on as normal and really making minor changes. And it's got endorsed by people like Bill Gates, which is not surprising since it's not suggest a radical rethink. But that that side of things, just, oh, actually, you don't need to worry about stuff, just change your behavior, you know, was not the side that was being emphasized in this TikTok. It was very much just the dystopia and the anger side. And maybe that's what appeals to youngsters much more than they you know, the, the, the soothing message that appeals to my generation of people who can't bother changing. I think it's really interesting, mm. actually, that the, the alternative, the more positive future is actively rejected in some of the TikTok videos I've looked at as well, because another discourse that seems to be very present there is the idea of young people shouting at people in power, shouting at the older generations, getting very angry at them, often with the construction of people in power, almost in a kind of parental sense that you're shouting at your parents' generation and the people who are supposed to be looking after you, who are supposed to be looking after the planet. And I saw one actually where the 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 the, the adult, the person in power was sort of tapping the child on the head, reassuring them, it'll all be all right. You just put your trust in us. And they're screaming in anger, you know, on the other side, these two warring factions across the generations. I mean Again, I'm, 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 I, the first thing I would say is I'm quite resistant to the idea of the generational divide on this. I think, actually, it, the evidence shows that that's not necessarily the key. I think sometimes the older generations are, are there as kind of representative of, of everything that power has done. And, and, and I would probably guard against that, but certainly it's there. This idea of the children screaming in anger and frustration and you know and and the people in power saying it'll all be all right just you trust in us and you know trust in the process trust in the process yeah the, i mean there are there are surveys that that, that show that that concern and um frustration and uh, a desire for people in power to do something about climate change it does cross the board it's it's uh, of all age groups and so it's an interesting um it's interesting that we have these discourses where it does seem to pit young versus old um, in, in, as, a, as, a, as a kind of generational battle. Um, it, it, it's, it doesn't seem to match, as you're saying, Catherine, it doesn't seem to match how people actually feel about this. People do, of all ages, want to do things. And, I, and we were talking yesterday in the podcast about how you know, people were talking about intergenerational conflict, testifying to the US Senate in 1985. We had a clip yesterday of that. Um, Shall we have a look at think about how this particular post represents climate change. And a couple of things I was thinking about, um, this contrasts really starkly with a couple of the other uh, texts that we've looked at. It's presenting, it's presenting an imaginary future and speaking about it as though it's the present, which I think is quite, um, quite powerful as an image. To, um, and of course, the irony is that this is some of this is how things are right now for people in various parts of the world. Yeah, suffering fires, um, floods, uh, rising sea levels, crop failures, droughts. So this is for people in many Western countries. This is this is still an imagined future, but actually for some people right now, it's the present. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is that that stark imagery 
of failing ecosystem really contrasts with some of the leaders that we've seen. We looked at Johnson. We keep coming back to this metaphor of his football match and us being 5-1 down and maybe we're going to pull a goal back, keeping the environment separate as a, as a sort of opponent for, for humanity. But also we saw a couple of episodes ago, Alok Sharma tweeting about, you know, discussing the tough task ahead, but really using that to promote his own personal image, his brand, by being shown pictured with Barack Obama. Um, and this is very, very different. This is much more like some of the activists that we've seen at COP26 and, and some of the speakers that we've seen there. Any thoughts on that? I, I think that the key point is that it's not an imaginary future and not, not just relating to other parts of the world, but actually if you look at the scientists and what they're actually saying, and actually one of the real, I wouldn't want to say this conference has been a failure and I think we should focus on progress, but if you took as the bottom line, the keeping the 1.5 level of warming alive as, as an ambition, then, well, we'll see what happens in the next couple of days. But I'd be very, with, you'd need every single caveat in the world now to ever, based on the pledges, keep that ambition alive. So in that sense, it, it's not an imaginary future, really. It's happening in places. But actually, this is what the scientists who understand this better than anyone, you know, they're, they're saying this is what will happen if we don't stick to the ambitions that we previously set. And, and as I say, it looks like we're not going to. So what happens with the political discourses and the, and, and, and the journalists follow suit a bit because they are focused on, they want people to invest in this process. They know the process is never going to be as ambitious. The action's never going to be as fast. They're never going to meet the demands of the activists, but they don't want them to come away and say there's been no progress made at all. So the political message always is, here are the things we can do, so let's focus on the progress in the areas that we can make. But yes, absolutely, it's not enough. It's, 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 I, think, I think the overall message will be over time is that we, we didn't stick to the ambition in Paris. We're not going to now. And actually, you know, this, we have to be realistic about what that means. Yeah. We've also got here and in some of the official discourse, in fact, I think, Tom, maybe everything that we've looked at across the podcast series, um, an absence of the perpetrators of the physical actions which lead to climate change. So if we have uh, greenhouse gases, if we have carbon emissions, that comes about by digging soil, by in intensive farming of uh, livestock, of burning fossil fuels. So those physical actions give the effect that we, we are now seeing. But what's always absent are the people that actually then do those things and the, the systems which allow those things and give a legal framework and actually... Uh, demand that these things are done intensively, um, and I, you know, I always think that if if, we, if you've got a problem, you need to analyse the cause and source of the problem. And what we seem to be having, really, really commonly, is um, a discourse which focuses on the results and the and the effects. And of course, that's very, very important. But it's only half the problem. It's only half the story. The other half of the story is well, how did this happen in the first place? What are we doing that's making these physical effects occur and even here and then maybe this is because it comes from this book so I'm, you know, the future we choose maybe this is based maybe there's an absence there uh, of the perpetrators but um it, it's a common theme when we're not seeing a discourse which focuses on the causes in terms of society economics politics any any comments on that no interesting one i suppose it's uh, 
TikTok's quite short. You can't do too much. But yeah, but I think I think you're right. I think it's very interesting that that's not done. But what I think it does do alternatively, perhaps, is it focuses on actors in 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 the future and personalising it as you. So even though maybe the actors, in terms of the calls, are, are not here, it changes the focus on the future in terms of the climate and seawaters rising and that sort of stuff to the effect that the very immediate effect you will have, that will have on you as the person experiencing it, but also in terms of then linking it with wars and migration patterns, which I think is really interesting. Instead of keeping it down to nature, it's making human activity embedded in nature in, in, in a much more serious way than other things, that this will cause you know lots of changes in, in human behavior, not just that the environment, but also therefore managing to tick some boxes that are the fears of maybe other people. I'm, I'm not going to say the older generation now, but I think, uh, mm. you know, uh, migration and war, which are probably two big uh, voters' concerns that people who aren't so concerned about the environment, this has been able to link it to, to other concerns. So I found that quite interesting that it did erase human causality, but it didn't, it highlighted the the effect on human activity, which may be an alternative perspective. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know if it's even so much about there's an absence of attention on the perpetrators. There's an absolute absence of attention to the system and, and relations of power, really. Now, let's be honest, whether we're going to tackle climate change or whether we're going to tackle it on climate is all about power because power gets in the way. It gets in the way of the media message. It gets in the way of the political talks. We don't in any way in our media have a broader discussion about how we got here and the way in which individual behaviour is structured by the system. And fundamentally, that's why it's no good to simply say, nobody really believes changing your light bulbs is going to solve climate change. And, and collectively, if we eat less meat, for sure, that does make a difference. But fundamentally, it's structurally got to change because we only make these changes if they're convenient, if the world around us changes and we can slot in. We can't not drive to work if we've got to be at work at nine o'clock and then take our children in as well. You've got to add the cycle lanes. You've got to allow people to arrive later. You've got to change the entire system around people before their behaviours are going to change. And we haven't addressed that. So individual behaviour makes a difference as part of a collective, but collectives can only change when the structures around them change. But do we have a complete absence of, you know, a discussion of capitalist power? No, we don't in our mainstream media. That's not to say we don't necessarily have it on social media. And we were talking about this earlier, but I find one of the very interesting juxtapositions that goes on on a platform like TikTok, to me, it's this hyper-consumerist, individualized, almost embodiment of neoliberal media. And of course, you know, the marketization of data is the essence of social media more generally, and yet young people are going on there and making these anti-capitalist messages. And and I don't know whether young people are aware of that. I think maybe to a degree they are aware of that irony, but I would be very wary of leaving political discourse in the hands of social media platforms. They're so incredibly constructed and, again, constructed by vested interest and power. That's where we are. Yeah, that's really interesting. I totally agree. I'm just wondering about one thing that struck me the other day when we were talking about the Democracy Now! coverage and the fact that it did look at the root causes. It's one of the few places that did. But it's got a very niche, limited audience and it doesn't change its message. It is just firing out the same message to these people. It's not trying to broaden its its uh, readership or listenership. And I just think I, I was using the term capitalists 
um, means the economy as well. But is it the capitalist economy? It's just the it's economic relations, isn't it, in the world now? There's, you know, because then if we use, you know, as we use quite a lot of academians, people of my age, talk about the mm. capitalist system. I'm not sure that that is hitting the right buttons, attracting the right people. This can turn people off immediately. So anyone reading Democracy Now! will just see all this anti-capitalist stuff and be turned off. Whereas actually the economic system, you know, it, it, it's across the world. And people can almost say, well, what about China? You know, what about your socialist countries? Because they are just as much involved in the capitalist system as anyone else. And maybe, you know, the, the use of the term capitalist isn't something that under 25-year-olds are doing, but they might see it in terms of the economic system, the global economic system. And maybe, maybe you know, for different audiences, we want to avoid maybe on capitalism. It's the system. It's just the global system that's maybe the, the enemy and uh, we might have some traces of all the battles. In I, I think that's I think that's right, actually. And I mean, I, I use those terms and, and uh, you know, different audiences respond differently. Certainly, I think that anti-capitalist in many places would be code for socialist, communist, which a lot of people would absolutely. Really absolutely. Left, yeah. So, so I, I think actually a narrative that does work for young people and, and maybe appeals to a broader audience is, is that uh, sense of endless economic growth and the constant uh, reinforcement of economic growth yeah. and that being the goal and perhaps there being, you know, introducing alternative goals about around well-being, yeah. uh, you know, kind of people's happiness, health, you know, and, 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 and the, the broader sense of well-being as opposed to this constant, endless economic growth and that being the objective for everything. And I think youngsters are getting caught up and they're here, obviously, around the world system, but I think this generation of people in the UK, they're really suffering the the, the you know the problems with that not being able to mm-hmm. afford houses, not to being out of jobs, and so being on this constant treadmill of growth that's stopping this pricing them out the market is is really hitting them hard. I think this country. I mean, I think however we define it, I said earlier, I think this young genera- this generation of young people are are very politicised, and I think the reason they're politicised not just on climate change is because the kind of politics and that obsession with economic growth and the impacts of that have really reduced opportunities. Uh, for young people, yeah, in terms of the job markets, the lack of security, the inability to 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 I guess achieve the things that they thought they would inevitably achieve because their parents did, like owning homes and things. And absolutely, I see yep. why that generation is angry and disillusioned because it's rational, actually, because that is what the political and the economic system have done to young people. It's my daughter keeps telling me about this thing, the way they're using the term boomers, isn't it? They're saying the older generation criticising them for not getting on with getting a job, but they're firing back. Yeah, but you had it. You had everything. No national service, free health service. You could afford your houses at such and such a price. And you're complaining about us. We, you had all the opportunities that we didn't. And there's a resentment to that, that attitude from, from the paternal pat on the head from people who had a much easier life. I think that's right. I mean, I, 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 I definitely think that is there and it is a feeling and that sense of generational divide. The one thing I'll say about that, because I, 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 I really, I dislike that construction simply because what I feel is that structurally, actually, the relationships between grandparents and their children and parents and their children is much closer now than it ever was before because of the reliance on grandparents for childcare, which became a thing because of the economic system. And I've got to say, my children know their grandparents every bit as much almost as they know me. Those bonds are so close. The idea that grandparents won't care about the future of their own grandchildren, who they care about so deeply. So I think 
you know, a, a, you know, direct anger where it should be at those in power, at those in power. And yes, sometimes the older generations can be a little bit complacent, perhaps, about things that they have had. But direct anger where it's deserved is what I would say. Thank you. Let's um, start winding up and go to our soundbite of the day, Tom. Soundbite of the day. Okay. So we're going to go back to democracy now, just because I saw this really nice headline, which says, like locusts, lobbyists swarm COP26 in Glasgow. And we've been looking at a few metaphors over the time. Michael in particular picked up about metaphors, but I really like this one. It's a cleverly constructed little story that says that there are locust swarms in, in some places around the world, and this has been caused by climate change, by our climate disaster and yet these are the very people representing these countries are not getting a place at the table we've heard about cop being very unrepresentative and being exclusionary and at the same time there are more lobbyists than there have ever been before and they're lobbying for the fossil fuels etc etc all the very things that are, are causing climate change so a very nice little metaphor it's quite a grabbing soundbite and it really is a bite today talking about comparing the real locust problems they cause with the uh, lobbyists as locusts as well yeah, really good one. Thanks, Tom. Catherine, thank you very much for being on the podcast. It's been really fantastic hearing um, about social media and communications and, 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 and all your insights into that. So thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. We'll be back on Monday for the last one of the series. So thank you very much for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye now.